I'm going to ask you to take your Bible this morning, turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, our text is Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45 this morning, as we take a look at the concept of servanthood this morning. Ambition. Too little ambition makes a person aimless and apathetic. Too much ambition makes a person self-centered and self-serving. My favorite story of over-ambition in my own life came when I was a, a boy of 10 or 12 years old, and I was with my grandfather, Everett, nicknamed Pat Patterson. Grandpa Pat was from Oklahoma. Born and raised in Oklahoma. As a matter of fact, his favorite expression, whenever he met somebody, he would say, I was born and raised in Oklahoma. But evidently, he didn't care too much for Oklahoma. Because when he was 16 years old, he jumped a freight train and never went back. Traveled all over the country back in that day. Ended up in New York City. Sold business machines in New York City. And that's where my mother was born in 1925. Raised there in New York City. Grandpa moved to Birmingham in the 1960s and he remarried. One day we were at a grocery store together. He'd taken me out. We were at a grocery store together. He told me to run, get a snack, anything that I wanted. Run, get a snack. So I ran, got a snack. I came back with a dozen full-size powder-coated donuts. He said, son, is that all for you? I said, yes, sir. And as we were going home, I proceeded to eat six of those donuts. While still in the car, I had a terrible stomach ache. And that's when my grandfather uttered those famous words of over-ambition. He said, son, it looks like your eyes were too big for your stomach. Well, in the intervening years, my stomach has closed the gap on my eyes considerably. You like that, Allison? I wrote it just I wrote it just for you. I suppose I was trying to get in the Guinness Book of World Records under the category gastronomical greatness. But one of the things I've learned is that the truth is we can be overambitious at times. James and John, two of the disciples of our Lord Jesus, were guilty of being overambitious. Those two sons of thunder had the ambition of being the greatest in the kingdom of God, but Though they wanted the fame and the notoriety, they didn't really want the service that went with it. At least not then. Not at that point in their lives. They saw Jesus as the Messianic King who had come to fill the seat of King David and to, to sit upon the throne, the fallen throne of David. They believed that Jesus would soon be crowned King in Jerusalem. And they wanted to be seated in thrones on either side of Him at His coronation conversation that Jesus had with James and John along with the rest of his disciples that day tells us a great deal about servanthood. And here's what I want you to see. Christ measures greatness in his kingdom by our willingness to serve others for his sake. Christ measures greatness in his kingdom by our willingness to serve others for his sake. In other words, greatness in the kingdom of God only comes through service to others. And we serve Christ by serving others. Our church family had a wonderful example of that this past week with Lift Lamar. I'm so thankful that we did that. This morning, I want to show you the dramatic contrast between servanthood and self-centeredness. Between serving others and serving ourselves. Between the right road and the wrong road to kingdom greatness. So let's begin with number one, the wrong road 
to kingdom greatness. The wrong road to kingdom greatness. Look with me, if you will, at Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 42. It says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, Teacher, they said, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. And they replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left hand in your glory. You don't know what you're asking for, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink. You will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became angry, indignant with James and John. Jesus called them all together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. This morning, I want us to look at some road signs. Some road signs on the wrong road to kingdom greatness and some road signs on the right road to kingdom greatness. So let's begin with the wrong road to kingdom greatness. The first road sign is this, self-centered motivation. Self-centered motivation. Mark chapter 10 verses 35 through 37 says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And wisely, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, let one of us sit at your right hand, the other at your left hand when you come into your glory. In Matthew's account of this story, he tells us that Salome, the mother of James and John, came with them when they made this audacious request. Now the scriptures tell us that Jesus nicknamed James and John the sons of thunder, perhaps because of their erratic and often over-the-top reactions to things. Well, if their father was thunder, then their mother being with them when they make this selfish and arrogant request, she must have been lightning. Did you hear the thunder and lightning this morning? And most of us got awakened by it. James and John are totally motivated by an obsession for their own glory and honor. They want the praises of men. They want to be in the spiritual limelight. They want to be the center of attention. And you know, human nature hasn't really changed that much. Whether it is some television preacher or perhaps we should say today, internet preacher, who is teaching us once again the painful lesson that absolute power without accountability always corrupts, or whether it is a church family where selfish power struggles continue to devastate whole congregations, the self-centered motivation of James and John is still among us. Please listen to me. One of the signs of real spiritual growth in maturity is that we have moved from the egotistical need to have the center of attention focused on ourselves to the demand that attention be focused on Jesus Christ and Him alone. Remember, He is the one who said, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto Me. Jesus didn't say, And you, if you be lifted up, will draw all people unto you. He said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all people unto Unto me, I hope you serve the Lord through His church. If you don't presently do so, I hope you'll begin to think about how you might do that. And if you serve the Lord through His church, I hope your motivation for serving Him is pure. I hope it is to bring Christ praise, honor, and glory. And if it is so, then you won't want to be the center of attention. Rather, you'll want the glory to be brought to Him. Then secondly, the second road sign as we see on the wrong road of kingdom greatness is an inflated estimation. Inflated estimation. Verses 38 through 40. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. 
Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to give. Those places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. What makes James and John think that they are worthy of sitting on thrones on either side of Jesus? They must have had an inflated estimation of their own importance and their own abilities. Notice the brazen overconfidence that they have in verse 39. Jesus asking them that they can drink His cup and be baptized with His baptism. And smugly, arrogantly, they murmur, we can. We're able to share someone's cup in the ancient world was to share their fate and their destiny. James and John did not understand what, of course, was about to happen to Jesus at all. They thought he was going to Jerusalem to be handed a crown. Rather, he was going to Jerusalem to hang on a cross. They could see him in his glorification, but they could not see him in his humiliation. They could see him on the Mount of Olives ascending into glory, but they could not see him on Mount Calvary suffering for the sins of the world. They couldn't see that at all. They should have seen that. Jesus told them about that. As a matter of fact, just before this story, Jesus makes his final and fullest prediction of his coming passion, of his death. And he tells his disciples about it. The cup that Jesus would drink is a common Old Testament metaphor for the wrath of God. Jesus was going to Calvary to drink the cup of the wrath of God against human sin. The baptism that Jesus spoke of was a baptism of blood, his own blood. Jesus had said that he had a baptism to undergo and how he was distressed until it could be accomplished. No wonder that James and John knew, of course, they didn't, or rather did not know what they were asking for. Someone has said that if Jesus had granted the request of James and John, they would have hung on crosses on either side of him. They didn't hang on crosses on either side of him. But Jesus did say they would drink his cup. Jesus did say they would be baptized with his baptism. Do you know who the first martyr of the Christian church was? James, the brother of John. Right here in this story. In Acts chapter 12, we're told that he was the first martyr of the Christian church. And then thirdly, third road sign we see on the wrong road to kingdom greatness is jealous indignation. Mark chapter 10 verse 41 says, When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. James and John weren't the only disciples of Jesus who misunderstood what made someone great in the kingdom of God. The other ten disciples got it wrong too. And they proved that when they became angry with James and John. Someone has said that there is no better gauge by which we may judge our own spiritual depth than to study the things that make us angry. In other words, the things that make us angry tell us about our own spiritual maturity or the lack thereof. Petty jealousy still creep into the church. People get ticked off sometimes and they even drop out of church when they're not chosen for a particular job at church when they probably should rejoice that there's more than one person that can do that job at church. People, of course, not only that, people get offended when they don't receive the recognition they think they deserve at church. When we thought it was all about Jesus and not about personal recognition. People criticize others who are doing the very best job they can. And yet those who criticize often won't lift a finger to help out. I remember the famous story of 
19th century evangelist, D.L. Moody. A woman once came up to him after one of his crusades and said, Mr. Moody, I don't like the way that you do evangelism. took him a few moments to come up with a response, but he came up with a zinger. He said, well, ma'am, I like the way I do evangelism a whole lot better than I like the way you don't do it. Oftentimes the critics ought to be put to the fire. Let them try it. See how well they do. The other ten disciples were just as egotistical as James and John, and they proved it through their jealousy and resentment at the request that James and John made. That proves that Jesus has to work with every single one of us. We get saved because we're sinful. But we continue to need Christ's forgiveness and understanding and love and patience and discipline sometimes. Because though we get saved, we're not perfect, are we? We still have to keep working toward perfection. Won't get there till heaven, but we need to keep working toward it. The final road sign we see on the wrong road to kingdom greatness is a self-serving domination. Self-serving domination. Mark chapter 10 verse 42 tells us, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. You don't really get the point of what Jesus is saying unless you understand the word Gentiles. It's a gentle word. The word Gentiles is a gentle word. It's not as meaningful as probably the way it should be translated. The Greek word is ethnos, from which we get the English word ethnic. And in Jesus' day, I guarantee you, it would have had more the connotation of our word pagan. What is he saying here? You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the pagans lord it over them. You see, the word was used for all non-Jewish people. Jesus is saying this is how the pagans rule over those under their, their authority. The Roman Emperor Galba had in his early life been regarded as a youth of remarkable potential and abilities. Both Caesar Augustus and Tiberius had predicted that he would one day be a great leader. He became an able military commander, but somewhere along the way, his view of leadership was corrupted. Upon rising to the throne of the Roman Empire, he said, Now that I am emperor, I may do what I like, and I may do it to anyone I like. Not exactly the heart of someone who rose to that position to serve his people. But if you'll notice on the screen, he didn't reign very long. He didn't rule the world but eight months. Okay? He was assassinated because of his tyranny and cruelty. Tacitus, the Roman historian, said, all would have pronounced him worthy of the empire if Galba had never been emperor. Everybody would have loved him if he hadn't gotten that job. When he got that job, he showed some real character flaws. That he wasn't serving to serve others, but that he was serving to take out all of his vengeance on all he thought deserved it. That's what happens when we see leadership as the right to enforce a self-serving domination over others. One of the ways leadership does not uh, do that, of course, is, is, is told to us by Peter in his first letter. 1 Peter chapter 5. He tells us as pastors and, and ministers not to lord it over the flock of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that expression. It's the same expression Jesus used here in verse 42. 
Don't lord it over people. That's not how you serve people, by lording it over them. What qualities do American church members look for in their ministers and pastors? To find that answer a number of years ago, the Association of Theological Schools sponsored a three-year project that cost more than $500,000. More than 5,000 church members were surveyed from 47 different denominations, and here's what they found. The three most sought-after qualities that American churchgoers are looking for in their ministers or pastors are, number one, humility. The willingness to serve others without regard for notoriety or publicity. Secondly, honesty. A personal integrity that carries out commitments and honors promises. And lastly, Christian example. Someone who lives out the truths that they are preaching. You know something? Those three most important qualities that American church members are looking for in their ministers are also the three most important qualities that American ministers are looking for in their church members. We need to be people of humility, honesty, and example. We've seen the wrong road to kingdom greatness. Let's finish by looking at the right road to kingdom greatness. We'll see three road signs on this right road to uh, to kingdom greatness. The first road sign is voluntary subordination. Voluntary subordination. In Mark chapter 10, verses 43 through 44, Jesus said, It will not be so among you. What will not be so? The way the pagans lorded over those under their charge. That will not be so among you, Jesus said. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. The Greek word is diakonos. And whoever wants to be first must be slave or doulos of all. They're two different words, by the way. Jesus described worldly leadership in verse 42, where the top person lords it over others. Then he states, but it will not be like that among you. Worldly leadership is not a model for biblical leadership. Biblical leadership does not lord it over people. Biblical leadership does not demand recognition and status. It does not pay attention to titles. It does not use position for its own personal advantage. In all of these areas, worldly leadership models selfish men seeking selfish advantages. Biblical leadership models servanthood, even at the price of personal inconvenience and self-sacrifice. In Mark chapter 10, verses 43 through 44, Jesus had said that whoever wants to be great, if you want to be seen as one of the higher-ups in the kingdom of God, then you must become a servant. And he uses that Greek word diakonos, from which we get our English word deacon. Deacons are to be servants. Yes, they are leaders, but they're first and foremost to be servants. Then Jesus goes on to say, if you don't just want to be one of the higher-ups, if you want to be the highest up, if you want to be the greatest of all in the kingdom of God, then you've got to be a slave. The Greek word is doulos. It's a different word. You've got to be a slave to everyone. You ever thought about being a slave? Slaves have no rights. They're not consulted. They're shown no consideration. Shown little appreciation. They're shown no recognition. And that's kind of how it is to be a servant. See, everybody wants to be called a servant, but nobody wants to be treated like a servant. Servants aren't treated very well. Everybody wants to be thought of as a servant. What a wonderful thing. But we don't particularly like being treated like a servant. The magazine Christianity Today once carried an article about a church in Santa Fe, New Mexico that had a hand-lettered sign over the only entrance into its sanctuary and that sign said, Servant's Entrance. 
The connotation, of course, is that all we have in this church are servants. We don't have it, anybody lording it over anybody else. All we have is servants. And you had to go through the service door to get into the sanctuary of that church. That's how every church ought to be. It's a place for servants only. So who is the greatest in God's kingdom? Those who humbly serve as Jesus did. Then secondly, the second road sign on this right road to kingdom greatness is a loving motivation. A loving motivation. In John chapter 21, Jesus makes one of His post-resurrection appearances along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He catches Peter there. He and Peter need to talk. Peter had said, I'll never forsake you, Lord. Three times Peter denied that he knew Jesus. It's time for Peter and Jesus to have a talk. So Jesus just looks into his eyes and he said, Peter, do you really love me? Boy, what a question. What a humbling question. Do you really love me? Peter said, Lord, you know that I do. Despite what I've done, you know that I do. Jesus gave him a charge for service. He said, then Peter, if you love me, feed my lambs. Peter, if you love me, tend my sheep. Three times Jesus asked, and three times Jesus said, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. There's a principle there. We prove that we love Christ best when we serve Him most. We prove that we love Christ best when we serve Him most. How are you proving your love for Jesus? How is your service? Where are you serving? What are you doing? You know, there's an advantage to service in our lives. It is through service that we find our profoundest sense of meaning and purpose in life. That's the advantage. That's the plus of service. We find what we were made for. We discover why we're on the planet. By serving others. It's a honing story that comes out of World War II about a, a Jewish boy who was living in a small Polish village when he and all the other Jews of the area were rounded up by the Nazis and sentenced to death. The boy joined his parents and other Jewish folks to dig their own shallow grave in front of a long wall. They were then lined up against the wall and machine gunned down. Somehow, none of the bullets hit the little boy. The blood of his parents splattered on him, so they assumed he was dead as well. He didn't move. They threw him into that shallow grave, but the grave was so shallow and the soil was so thin on top that he could continue to breathe. And he waited till nightfall. And when nightfall came, he crawled out of that grave caked with blood and dirt and he ran to the nearest house he could get to. And the woman opened the door and she realized who he was and what he was. And she screamed and told him to get out of there. And he went to house after house where that same reception took place until he had an idea. The last home he went to, the woman opened the door and before she could say anything, before she could scream, he said to her, don't you know who I am? I am the Jesus who you say you love. And she was so touched by that and broken in spirit that she embraced him and took him into her home and protected him. Dear friend, you see, you can serve Jesus without loving Him, but you cannot love Him without serving Him. You cannot love Jesus Christ and not serve Him. The last road side we see on the right road to kingdom greatness is a Christ-like imitation. 
In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying that He came into our world to serve us, and we likewise should be investing our time serving others. And I was so proud of Lift Lamar this past week. It consisted of 12 projects between this past Monday and Wednesday which served college students, senior adults, children, and young families. Altogether, 109 folks served others. And Jason Till left me a a text message to share with me all the ways folks were served. The Great Exchange, which had 115 gospel conversations and 12 professions of faith in Jesus, took place at Gordon College. Construction work on the food pantry at Hope Tree Ministries made a great progress there. Landscape work on our local library beautified the grounds. Garden work for senior adults at the Villas on Forsyth was very much needed. Our entire public school complex had the trash picked up and people prayer walking around it for two evenings. Forty-eight resident assistants and directors at Gordon College were blessed with gift boxes and personalized notes of encouragement. Our local law enforcement and emergency personnel were blessed as the entire police, sheriff, fire, and EMS departments were fed during the week. Altogether, well over 300 people were impacted directly through Lift Lamar. What a wonderful week it was. A special thanks goes to Jason Teal. A special thanks goes to Joe Andrews, our missions action team director, for leading out and lift tomorrow, and for all who gave of their time and talents this past week to serve the Lord. It was a wonderful week. It will be a week that we'll long remember, but it cannot be the only week of service for us. There are all kinds of ways we need to be serving, both outside the church and inside the church. Where are you serving? Where are you serving? This past week I've done some thinking about where we are in Sunday school. This is coming up on nominating committee time and time that our folks are voted in, new committees are voted in, new teachers are voted in, new workers for the music ministry are voted in. In 2006, when we went to three services and two Sunday schools, we had four adult Sunday school classes to service this service. We had four adult classes that were responsible for seeking to reach the folks in this service and work with them for the folks that would attend our new contemporary service. Today it's 13 years later. With that service bursting at the seams on many Sundays, we only have three adult Sunday school classes. If we're going to continue to grow, if we're going to look to the future, we need some young leaders that will help us start at least one new 11 o'clock Sunday school class this coming year. If we're going to continue to stay at the pace we're at, we must grow. In addition to that, not all of the younger adults in our church groove with this service. We've got younger adults at other services. You may not know that, but we do. And they may not care for contemporary worship, but they do need a Sunday school class. And what we found is that those young adults that come to church at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock don't really have much of a Sunday school class. Nothing for their age, nothing for anybody younger than about 50 years old. So we need to bring Sunday school classes in. Because you know our problem is Baptist and Sunday school, don't you? After you're 18 years old, you never go anywhere else. You keep graduating up through the ranks until you're about 18. Then you get in a Sunday school class, and that Sunday school class stays your class for the rest of your life till you hit the last train to Clarksville. Okay? And so we never change Sunday school classes. You know, folks in in adult three were in adult one, very same class. 
when they were an adult one. So we, we need to bring new classes up under our existing classes because that's the only way we create new classes, to bring them up for the younger folks. Now, if you have an ambition to do something like that, I'd like you to talk to me or Russ Jenkins about that, if you will, because we are needing to continue to grow, and that's one of the ways we will continue to grow. As we close this morning... Notice how Jesus served us by giving His life as a ransom for many. The supreme service was accomplished by His supreme sacrifice. What He gave for us was His life. Dear friend, the most profound truth you or I will ever know is that Jesus died for us. Remember the story of Paul Tillich. Many consider a great theologian of yesteryear. He was once speaking to a group of seminary students in the auditorium at their seminary. And he finished his speaking and they had a little time left over, so they did a Q&A. That's popular to say that nowadays. You may not think that I know what that means. That means <laughs> question and answer, okay? So they did a Q&A. And one of those seminary students, in a rather arrogant and conceited manner, and you do, I hope, know that seminary students can be arrogant and conceited. After Paul Tillich spoke, stood up and said, Mr. Tillich, or Dr. Tillich, what is the most profound spiritual truth that you've ever learned? And Paul Tillich said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And he was exactly right. Is there anything more profound than God so loved the world that he gave his only son that we should not perish but have everlasting life? The most profound truth in the universe is that despite our sinfulness, God loved us enough to send his son to die for us. Because he died for us, of course, we can know his salvation. And as knowing his salvation, we ought to be serving him. And so this morning, are you living a life of service for him? Are you living a life of service for him? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us now to make the decisions that would please you and bless us as we seek to be your people. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.